Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Cancer Fight Podcast, recorded in Louisville, Kentucky, and produced by the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Cancer Fight aims to highlight the stories of fighters and survivors of all forms of cancer, as well as educate the public about prevention and awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Whitney Jones, a gastroenterologist and founder of the Colon Cancer Prevention Project. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Today, we're speaking with Angie Davis, the president of Fight CRC, a national advocacy, organizing, and research facilitating organization well known across the country in the colorectal cancer prevention space. Angie Davis, nice to see you. Welcome to Cancer Fight. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we've known each other for quite a while back when you were uh, in your youthful days at South Carolina and before. So as we get started, uh, tell us a little bit about Angie Davis, sort of where, how you came to be, you know, and sort of take us right up to where you got into the cancer fight business. Sure. So um, I was an accidental advocate um, for cancer in general. I had graduated from uh, with a degree in public policy and um, had a friend that was trying to help me find a job. And I went from working for Big Brothers Big Sisters to clinical trials management. And I actually got the job because they thought, well, you're probably good at reading contracts. And so I started reading IRB contracts and pharmaceutical contracts and protocols and inclusion exclusion criteria for a local oncology clinic. And that was really my first foray into cancer. And the way they positioned me is they put my office right across the hall from the infusion room and patients would come by my office every day and say, hello, tell me a little bit about them. And I was just sort of the back end administrator, just running the, running the paperwork. And, um, I just remember I met so many lovely, wonderful people in that infusion room and, um, there was a gentleman, his first name was Ursilius. His wife would come in with all the time and she would be knitting and she was so sweet. And she came over to me and she said, Hey, we may not be here when this happens, but I knit, um, this, you know, baby onesie for you. So when, when the time comes, um, you, this is from me and Ursilius cause we love you so much. And I just remember it was those moments with patients, um, that I really fell in love with the work and, and then one day I had a patient come in and basically say, um, I can't afford my treatment. Um, I need you to help me figure out how many more treatments I can get. Um, I sold some property. This is how much money I have. Um, what's that going to buy me? And that's it. That's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do any more. I'm not going to fight. Um, I'm not going to go and try to figure out Medicaid or, you know, Medicare is overwhelming for me. And so I sold this property and this is all I'm going to get. Please explain it to my wife. And I just really realized like boots on the ground, what patients are dealing with, um, with or without insurance and just how patients just need an advocate. They need someone to be an advocate, to think through the things they just don't have the capacity to think through when they're trying to make life or death decisions around treatment. And so were you based in Missouri at this time or were yeah. you already on the coast? Was, yeah. yeah, I was in Missouri and it was a small community practice, um, but we had, it was a small community hospital and they were the highest recruiters for clinical trials at the time. 
And, um, and if it tells you anything, it wasn't very high. So it was pretty much the, the only outlet for about a 50 mile radius for a small community practice in Missouri. Um, and they were just getting their feet on the ground and they were actually opening up pharmaceutical trials so that they could keep their business afloat and expand revenue for their clinic. Right. And there are a ton of uh, practices out there that use clinical research, as you said, an augmenter and also as a draw for patients. And I think it's okay. great to have people at the basic community level engaged in research, not just uh, up in the ivory tower. So next, walk me into your transition uh, to where I first met you, which was uh, with your involvement in the South Carolina project, I would call it. Sure, sure. This is a funny story, actually. I, I enjoy telling this story. So um, I was at the, I was at a clinical practice for three or four years. And then my husband decided to go get his PhD and he um, was going to be a Gamecock. So we were going to go to Columbia, South Carolina. We'd never been there, never set foot in South Carolina, but we were going there. And um, I knew I wanted to work in cancer. And so I Googled cancer, Columbia, South Carolina, and the University of South Carolina had a brand new basic science research unit. The Center for Colon Cancer Research just got funded by um, NIH, and it was an $11 million program. And it was a brand new sort of flagship um, center. And I emailed Dr. Frank Berger and I said, hey, I'll, I'll clean the bathrooms. I'll whatever you need me to do. Um, but I'm coming to South Carolina. My husband just got into a grad program there. And this is really where my passion is and where I want to work. And I, I noticed you don't have any openings. Um, but if you would just take a peek at my resume. I'd be happy to, to work for you, sort of if you'll take me. Um, and he called me and said he'd never gotten <laughs> an email like that. But we inter he interviewed me and he had a business manager role open and he slotted me in there. And then over the years, he basically said, clearly you had a bigger plan than I did for you here. <laughs> and we did a lot of great work together. Right. And from what I've read, I mean, you brought in almost $11 million in funding to uh, the Center for Colon Cancer Research and worked with one of the greats uh, in colon cancer prevention uh, in the country. Frank Berger's a great guy. So, oh, so how, did, how did that experience then, uh, working in a rural state, now you've been in two rural states, you've been in Missouri, you've been in South Carolina. How did that prepare you and what shaped you for your next step as you uh, uh, rolled into your fight CRC uh, uh, position that you hold today? Well, I think South Carolina was pivotal. And I think that Frank Berger was um, not only, you know, a leader in colorectal cancer in basic science, but he was also one of the most amazing mentors I've had in my career um, in a lot of different ways. And I think it was really important that he he basically told me one day, he said, I know you have a lot of ideas, I'm a basic scientist. Um, if you can find the funding, you can do it. So I'll, he just sort of opened that up. And, and I told him, I said, you know, you have a lot of rats here and they're, it's wonderful. You have mice and rats and you've got these amazing core facilities, but we really need to figure out a way to bridge this amazing research, research facility to the community. So you've got $11 million from NIH, but what's the public benefit um, to the state of South Carolina. And 
what we did was, and this is where you and I met, and I think that we learned a lot from Kentucky and the work that you were doing um, at that time, but I started Googling colorectal cancer and who was doing great work and Kentucky was doing great work and you were leading the charge there and Colorado was doing amazing work and Holly Wolf and Andy Dwyer and others um, were really doing amazing work there. And I was like, how is this, how is this happening? And um, that's when the Dialogue for Action was funding grants um, at that time. And so I remember talking to you and your team and the Department of Health, and you all had gotten a Dialogue for Action grant, and we had gotten a Dialogue for Action grant. Um, and that's how I sort of funded this idea of how do we bridge what Frank was doing to the community. And that started with a, co a conference in Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, with 85 people that eventually led over the next decade to a million dollars reoccurring for colorectal cancer screening for the state of South Carolina. And I think um, for me, that was my um, really cutting my teeth at, at the work that um, I think eventually will be my lifelong career job. <laughs> so tell us about how you moved from the South Carolina piece into Fight CRC and a little bit about Fight CRC as an organization. So I, um, so the, the center was, was amazing and great. And I think, you know, I started to, to work with advocates and survivors and we did a program called shop talk where we were training African-American barbers and stylists on colorectal cancer screening and bridging GIs to, to screening. And it was a little bit of a different flavor because I was working with survivors and, and using survivors to, to share their story and encourage people to be screened. I started getting sort of the itch to, to look at what else we could be doing. And I went to um, a call on Congress event that Fight CRC was hosting in Washington, DC to lobby for um, the colonoscopy loophole bill and for CDC funds and for NIH funds. And I really saw a different side of advocacy when I went on the Hill alongside at the time, 25 other survivors to meet with members of Congress. And what I learned was Fight Colorectal Cancer was a patient empowerment organization that wanted to educate and empower people to share their story, but also to push for change and to fund the programs that I love so much at the state level. So the colorectal cancer screening program with the CDC, funding research um, like the programs Frank was leading as the, the lead PI, um, but without patient voices and advocates, all these things sort of couldn't happen in, in my view at that time. So I got to know Carly Bauman, um, Nancy Roach and Judy Sohn at Fight CRC. And then um, they, you know, Carly was like, what do you think about moving into a national nonprofit organization and seeing if you couldn't build a community outreach and screening program for Fight Colorectal Cancer? And so, um, just about the right time. I'd been with um, Frank for almost eight years at that time, um, started to consider that move um, in 2011. It didn't take your husband that long to get his PhD, did it? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, I, did I did tell him I wasn't <laughs> moving from South Carolina to Washington, DC. I did say that. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so a little bit about, um, you know, Fight CRC. You guys do tons of work, not only in this advocacy space, but really translating between national funding organizations. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later because you've done some really great innovative work in the AI space uh, with Kimono and you've got a lot of great 
ideas. And I, I, I like you share that that's going to be part of our path, you know, to success in the future. Mm-hmm. But, but give me a, a, give the listeners a little bit of an idea of the breadth of fight CRC, because it's certainly not just the patient advocacy piece. Like we think about recruiting people to get their colonoscopies. You are working at a much higher level, bringing big time national DOD NCI type funding, NIH funding into that translational space. Can you talk a little bit about the, the D&I work and the DIA work that you're doing and how, how that's impacting folks? Sure. I mean, to give a little bit of background on fight colorectal and why fight colorectal cancer and why it was founded. So Nancy Roach actually founded the organization because she was ultimately focused on advocacy and research. Those were the two main areas she really wanted to develop. And over the years, we've continued to expand the programming within the organization to cover the spectrum of what we call advocacy and research and patient education. And so what we do, and I'll start with patient education is, I always describe us as we dig a little bit deeper. So we don't provide top line information about colorectal cancer and treatment options and screening. We really provide an in-depth opportunity. So free podcasts, uh, webinars, one-pagers, magazines, fact sheets. Um, and really, if you're diagnosed with colorectal cancer, what we say is we are your guide in the fight. So from diagnosis to survivorship, we outline that entire journey for patients so that they know that um, they have the the latest and best information reviewed by the best in the world um, on colorectal cancer. So in our patient education front, we make sure that it's credible and that it's evidence-based and that it's it's driven by research um, and science. So you move into our advocacy, we have our policy change piece where it's advocacy on the Hill, talking to members of Congress, but our research advocacy component, which I think is really important, is we train advocates, um, caregivers, patients, and champions on science. So we have a core curriculum of training that they go through from basic stat to protocol development so that so that the research community has a strong pipeline of patients that can engage in science and um, clinical trial development and or reviewing grants or sitting on an IRB board. But that's a really important part of our research efforts. Now, in addition to that, what we we're a sort of spark plug, I think, for a lot of the work in the research community where we convene thought leaders. So I know, Whitney, you've been a part of our, our discussions and work groups, but what we've done is um, we had, before immunotherapy became a big thing for colorectal cancer, about a year prior, we had a board member, Jordan um, Gordon, and um, he had been on an immunotherapy trial. Unfortunately, he passed, but he Um, left us a part of his estate focused on how do we push the immunotherapy discussion forward. Um, This was again before the big trial had hit on MSI high for colorectal cancer. Um, We convened about 25 global leaders in New York City on what could the blueprint around colorectal cancer be behind immunotherapy moving you know, beyond MSI high patients. And so we were really fortunate to be able to do that. And we were able to publish um, our blueprint around that. And that work group has since then stayed together. And over the last four years, continue to work on immunotherapy that led to a clinical trials finder um, really focused on um, immunotherapy initially. And now what we've been able to do is develop the first and only patient curated clinical trial finder. 
Um, the work groups are really important because it's evolved. We've had the immunotherapy work group, a biomarker work group, a hereditary cancer work group, and now an early age onset work group. And um, to complement, and I think what's really important for fight CRC is we want to complement what's out in this already existing. We want, don't want to duplicate what others are doing. What we did was we wanted to complement what um, Tom Weber had been doing in New York City and say, okay, we're gonna have a work group really focused on the etiology and um, the um, research um, that is being done in early age onset and engage agencies like NCI and others to see if we can't amplify the work that everyone is doing, um, which ultimately led to an RFA um, focused on early age onset. And I think what's important is that the advocacy arm and the research arm are talking to each other because then we were able to put report language in um, to fund and encourage NCI to focus on early age onset on our advocacy side. So um, early age onset, I think is incredibly important and that's an area that we've continued to, to focus on. And um, it's, it's sort of been a, an opportunity for us to work with folks like Komodo Health and um, look at what they're doing and then work with our global partners. I think our last global conference we had that was supposed to be in Spain ended up being virtual, but we had over 400 researchers focus on early age onset um, this last year, and we hope to host another early age onset global discussion again um, this coming year. So it's been really exciting. I mean, the group has grown tremendously. When I started, we were a team of four, and we are uh, now a team of about 15 or 17 on any given day. And it's, uh, it's been really exciting to be a part of the growth. So, so all that work is great. I read a little bit about the Komodo partnership and using AI to determine, you know, how people are really working in the workplace. I work a lot of time on last mile issues. You know, how do you really get it across? When it comes to immunotherapy, do you still perceive that we have a first mile problem with getting physicians and clinicians to really understand the importance of MSI testing at the community hospital level? I mean, the data I read is that Folks don't even get uh, MSI testing lots of times in, in NCI organizations, not as often, maybe 10 or 15% of the time they're not using uh, immunohistochemistry. And again, that's probably dated now that we have the mm -hmm. foundation and so much genetics and genomics in cancer. But in community hospitals, MSI testing is not routine yet. No, I agree. I don't think biomarker testing, tumor testing is um, routine in general. Um, it's interesting. I moved from, like I said, Charleston, South Carolina, where we had an academic center to now I'm in Springfield, Missouri, which I would consider sort of a rural base. And um, I hear from patients here all the time that they're not getting tumor testing or their physician isn't talking to them about tumor testing or biomarker testing. And I think even though we're seeing progress with Foundation Med and um, Gardent and others, you're not seeing community practices engage. And I'll tell you, you know, just a personal story. And I think it's an important one as an example is, um, so I was diagnosed with cancer in February and I was at Mayo and, um, for a conference on cancer screening and actually got the call while I was there. And, um, when I, was talking to, and I was actually diagnosed here at the, at a community practice. And I, I actually fought every step of the way because I didn't agree with the, the physician, but I remember, um, the physician had, had basically said they weren't going to do biomarker testing. And I said, well, you know, 
that's just, it's, it's not possible that we're not going to do biomarker testing. And so I ended up moving and having my care done in St. Louis, but, um, but I will say I'm not your average patient and I'm not a patient that would, I don't think your average patient would argue with a physician to say that's completely wrong. But I think that, um, that's the level of advocacy that you have to be at for your right. own health when it right. comes to tests like this. And it is the difference. It's a, it's a deal breaker. I mean, you could really change the trajectory of your care having not um, gotten that test. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm glad you're on track and, you know, moving in the right space for yourself. But I think you're exactly right. I think uh, it, it's not, it's sort of stuck, I think, in the academic echo chamber is what I always call it, because I don't think it's just patients that don't know how to advocate or to utilize it. I think there's tons of clinicians out there that have never gone to that CME piece that said, this is standard of care to do biomarkers, or you could extend that into genetic testing for people who meet NCCN criteria. So I think there's tons of work at that breakout level. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to see the national organizations getting ready to try to translate that, that, that space into that community practice. Because I think even though, uh, I think 80% of care is delivered at the community practice level. Uh, and that's agree. where you see the lowest, uh, the lowest compliance with these new uh, echo chamber technology pieces. And genetics and biomarkers are gonna be even harder for people to get. I agree, I agree. And so that actually led us to the partnership with Komodo Health because we were doing a program called Biomarked. We partnered with Lilly Oncology on this initially and um, it was a tumor testing educational campaign for patients to really provide them with a discussion guide to talk to their physicians. Um, we provided video. We actually delineated the most important biomarkers for colorectal cancer patients and how that related to decision-making in lay language. And um, it was a cool campaign because we, we went to a sort of focus group to a lot of patients um, to prepare for this. And I just remember um, we had one patient, she had had over a hundred treatments. So she had had a hundred infusions. And we sat there and we said, well, what is your biomarkers? Like, do you know your biomarkers? And she had said, no, I have no idea. My doctors never talked to me about it. And we were like, there is clearly education that we need to do around it. So we invested that year, we invested over a quarter million dollars in education for patients. We worked on video dissemination, SEO, pushing video out. We had over a hundred thousand views of what is a biomarker test um, within the first six months of that campaign. And um, eventually led us to a discussion with Komodo Health over the years, because what we proposed to Komodo was based on claims data. Can you look at the highest propensity to test and the lowest propensity to test benched against highest mortality of colorectal cancer and patient volume of colorectal cancer patients and see if we can't target educational efforts based on that information. So we were able to send out biomarker education kits to all the physicians that had a high volume of patients but didn't test and those who had a high volume of patients and were testing so that they had those re resources. And we were able to do that this last year. And I think that is really powerful when you can drill down into the, who the physician is um, and target those materials. 
We're going to move off a little bit into the personal Angie leadership type space. Mm-hmm. Oh, Did boy. you have a prior experience in your family around cancer that pulled you into this work? Um, I mean, cancer had touched my family. I, to be, I'll be very honest. I did not set a plan to work in cancer. I had more of a focus on policy. My dad is a political science professor and, um, I grew up on political campaigns, um, since I was like four years old. Um, so I was sort of set on working in politics somehow or in policy or something like that. And then I think it was just my time working with the clinic that I, it made it a little bit more real to me that my parents, parents died of cancer and, and various things, but it didn't feel personal necessarily until I worked in a cancer clinic. Um, Do you feel like in retrospect, some of those political science I guess, qualities you were born with or, or got bred into you in an early stage of your development. How, how critical have those been in your success, particularly for where you are now? Well, I think it's, um, it's funny that you say that. Cause I always tell my dad, like, I work a lot like him. Like, so I learned how to work. Um, I learned how to be a community organizer without realizing I was learning how to be a community organizer. So, um, you know, my dad used to drive around the state of Missouri and meet with people and we would go talk to our state reps or he would make me tag along as he talked to his state reps and um, work with student groups and various things. And um, I think he really taught me the, the value of relationships. And um, I know you and I have worked together for many years and have seen me in my sort of element. And that is core to, I think, everything that Fight CRC is doing. And, and what I think is really important as a leader is, is having good relationships with people and kind of um, standing by your word and all those good old school things. <laughs> so what quality, if you could have bought it back when you were five years old and transported it into your current space, what quality have you had the hardest time adapting to and uh, working with other than it doesn't go fast enough. I know that. I know that quality. Yeah, it definitely doesn't go (laughs) fast enough. Um, that's a tough one. Um, I'll bring it back to, to colorectal cancer and, um, the stigma around this disease. So my parents, um, are, were very open about their life and their healthcare and various things. But I think if I had to give myself advice at that time is that that's not how everyone is. And so I think that I really had to learn over the years that, you know, really talking about poop, fighting with your physician or, you know, things like that. It's not second nature to people. And I really had to learn that over the years that that isn't the, that isn't the norm. Um, And so you really have to be patient um, with communities and people who are less apt to do that. And it's not because they aren't good advocates for themselves. They really just don't know what that looks like. It's never been modeled for them. So they really need to be um, supported and educated and told it's okay, you can, and it's okay. Um, So I think I've had to learn that over the years. How have you dealt with uh, 
frustration or adversity in your professional life as you faced and, and, you know, clearly if you've done a lot, you failed a lot. That's the nature of, of work. How do you approach adversity and, you know, tough problems that aren't the easiest to solve on the first time around? I think that, um, again, I, I'll, I go back to Frank. It was such a great mentor to me. Um, he really gave me the space to fail. And um, I think, you know, one thing I did learn was to fail fast and to fail forward. <laughs> um, and that's really been that's... what I have tried to, to take from that is that, you know, you just got to quickly pick it up and see the opportunity and move forward. Cool. Tell me what your definition of leadership is. What's your leadership philosophy as you lead this great organization uh, forward? Um, I think to be relentless. You know, our tagline is relentless champions of hope. And um, I think that is critical as a leader to be relentless, to be committed and, um, and to sort of embrace that about about what you're doing, because without being relentless, you will not achieve the mission. Uh, for sure. I like that. How about turning ideas into impact? A lot of people have great ideas. They're a dime a dozen. How do you uh, sort the wheat from the chaff and then pursue those that are maybe not seen by other folks, but you know that they're going to be the right thing? How do you turn ideas into impact? Um, you know, it's really funny. I think over the last few, you know, over the last decade, somebody told me this. they were like, Angie, you should just follow your gut. And I didn't really know what that mean. That meant like, follow your gut, go do it. Um, and what I realized is they're right. Like sometimes you get a really good gut feeling about something and you know that it is the right thing to do because you're going to see at the end of this real impact, but nobody else sees it. Um, and I, I think you have to follow your gut. I think as a leader, you have to know and have conviction around the work that you do um, and, and stay the course, um, even when others are telling you it's a bad idea. And I know that you've done that in Kentucky because <laughs> you were sort of a leader um, before we all believed that you could make legislative change in the way that you've done it. But you got to have it like you because I think if you don't have that you can stray off course, you can go different ways and you can be told by people, um, it can be done a different way. And I don't think that you end up having the impact you hope to have if you don't have that level of conviction. That's great. Question for the young uh, professionals out there and the folks coming up, how important are writing skills and particularly grant writing skills in your space? I think writes, writing skills in general are incredible. Um, I think grammar is wonderful. Um, I think that I think that, that being able to articulate an idea in writing is really valuable across probably all spaces, but in particular for us as advocacy organizations, if you're if you're thinking about getting into advocacy, it's just not even grant writing. It's it's everything we do boils down to, can you write a strong letter? Can you write a strong email? Can you write a great blog? I mean, you really have to hone your writing craft. Right, uh, 100%. That's why I always bring it up with, with great folks because no matter how much you struggle with it at the beginning, you know you have to learn to become a great mm -hmm. writer. Edit one through 20 on whatever that is. For here's, sure. a here's a question. What do you think is 
going great with the medical industrial complex and what is going crappy with the medical industrial complex right now. For instance, I think we spend so much on the basic science of treating chemo, treating colon cancer. Uh, and it's completely disproportionate in terms of research and funding for the prevention of colorectal cancer. That's one of my spaces. Where do you see it? Because you work both sides of the aisle. You're working in that advocacy space. You're also promoting basic research. Where can the medical industrial complex find the sweet spot? And where should it cut bait and get rid of things? And, and in colon cancer or cancer generally, your choice. I'll start with the prevention side, because I think um, that's where I started. It's still where I'm very passionate. I do think that, you know, we've done great things. I think actually 80% in every community and us rallying around and a specific goal has been really um, probably in the last five years, one of those sort of galvanizing things for the, the community. And you, you, you've seen success in states and in organizations and systems. So I think that ACS and, and CCRT and others who've led that um, did a great job. But what I struggle with is that we still have to break the box in colorectal cancer as it relates to messaging. We're extremely conservative. Um, you know, I, I heard something the other day, they were like, oh, well, you know, we just need to find evidence-based messaging around colorectal cancer. Well, sometimes it's not evidence-based that works. So by the time it's evidence-based, it's old. So really recognizing that social media and all the different platforms we have access to moves at the speed of lightning. So if you're waiting for evidence-based messaging, it's already here and gone. And if you expect it to be effective, it's not going to be. And I think that's, that's where I struggle is that there's a lot of public health academic speak as it relates to messaging of colorectal cancer. And, and I think that's the one area where we have to be comfortable being uncomfortable to really get um, the word out. And it was really funny. Um, somebody just talked to me the other day and they said, um, as you talk about awareness, and so I'll have to steal this from someone. They said, as you talk about awareness, can we push the conversation to not talk about awareness, but how do you become famous? And I thought that was a really interesting perspective because if we want colorectal cancer to be famous, what do we need to do for that to be famous or raise awareness? And there's a very different nuanced approach to those two different things. And I think we, we approach it as how do we raise awareness, but maybe we need to push ourselves to say, how does colorectal cancer become famous? Um, because if that's the case, we got to really push boundaries. For sure. And, and, and we, we sort of got a little uh, feedback on that when Chad Bozeman got cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I shot you a picture of one of my, my best images of that, where it had him standing next to Stan Lee, the creator of Marvels. Oh, yes. And mm -hmm. Stan Lee's like an old white guy. And here you got Chad Bozeman. And I swear we've spent all of our time and effort over the past 20 years, it feels like, trying to convince Stan Lee to get his colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And we haven't spent that same effort and that same time reaching out to folks who look like or of the same age of or relate differently, like perhaps Mr. Bozeman. It was a, it was one of those compare and contrast moments that I agree. I, it's it's blazed into my brain. And uh, that's what motivates us on early messaging is to, to get it out there. So I agree. I remember when we were in South Carolina and I got pushback because we did a campaign called What's Up Your Butt? 
And um, it was specifically for the African-American community in South Carolina and churches. And I, I, the university had said, oh my gosh, like no way, no how are you going to go city to city in South Carolina and talk about what's up your butt and put billboards all over the, the state. And um, Heather Brandt was on the committee with me and we had some barbers and stylists and local community members. And I said, well, let's do some focus groups and get some churches to look at this and see what they think. And they hands down loved it because in their mind, it was like, what's up your butt is like slang for how you doing today. You know what I mean? Like, how's it, how's it going? And it ended up being a great campaign. We had billboards everywhere, but that's sort of the, you know, that's a very soft example of, you know, we got to be contemporary about our messaging or if we're too soft, no one will notice. I love it. Well, that's the great segue into our innovation lightning round. Okay. And uh, you can sort of uh, expound as much as possible or as little as you want to. 45 versus 50 for the new screening age. Great. We need to 45. 45 is great, but we need to keep working on it. All right. Stool versus structural screening. What do you mean by structural screening? Help colonoscopy me. primarily. Um, CT colonography, but very few folks do it, which is a great, it's a great test. But the proliferation of FIT and stool DNA and how that fits in with what I would call a more traditional approach to colon cancer screening, which is uh, colonoscopy, particularly in the I Southeast. I can't pick that, Whitney. I would say multimodality screening. I think we need to have risk um, based on risk. Great. Are you guys doing any work uh, in the CRC or your research space around these new methylation-based multiomic screening tests that are going to be looking for multiple cancers in asymptomatic individuals, such as um, Grail or Thrive? So we have, well, Thrive just got bought, I think. Um, but yes, we they have did. been starting to, um, to look at the, the blood test, the race to the blood test, I think. Um, and I think there will be a blood test in the next five years. What's next in under age 50 colon cancer? And I guess we're going to have to drop that now that it's going to be under age 45. 45 to 50 just took care of about 50% of that under age 50 colorectal cancer in one swoop, which is great. Mm -hmm. What's is. next for us in, in EAO? Well, I mean, one, I think the drop in screening age just expanded our workload. So we, we have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that, you know, it's so funny. I was just on a call and somebody had said like, what do we do for the early age onset community? I think we have a ton of work to do to educate our early onset community on um, hereditary risk um, and conversations around um, signs and symptoms. Um, as the, as the screening age drops, I think, I think you coined this, um, but we need to be educating earlier and more often about colorectal cancer screening. If we're going to tackle this very large workload of screenings. And, and one thing I will say is that there isn't consensus on a multi-modality screening model, um, amongst healthcare professionals. And this may be a little controversial, but I sort of feel like, um, our healthcare professionals need to put some agendas aside as well and say, this is how you approach screening using stool-based screening plus colonoscopy, not either or. It's gotta be a combination of the two and how we adapt our screening models and systems and policies and coverage 
to accommodate that is so important. We got to work together on it. And I think that we're still, again, not being innovators around how we can develop programs that increase capacity rather than just confuse people <laughs> on what to do. Or give them a single choice. No, I love that. Yeah. I mean, we talk about screening the most people with a high quality test that's right based upon their risk on time. Exactly. As, as the overall goal, it's multidisciplinary. And I think blended strategies are going to be it. So maybe use less invasive tests as you're starting your risk and as you're finishing your risk towards the end of your life. Great, great insight. Uh, what about use of uh, genetic testing for people who meet the criteria and how in the world can we not benchmark family history as a pay to play uh, piece of work. I think there's a lot of work that we need to do with that. You know, it's actually one of the reasons why we started the hereditary cancer um, work group sort of in honor of Dennis Annan and the work that he had done and his legacy um, as a leader in that space. Um, but we we're just scratching the surface and I think fight CRC could do a whole lot more. All right. Tell me about some positive disruptive technology you're looking forward forward to coming into the space and really shake it up. Um, and you can include AI, you can include multiomics. Uh, is it just a change in mind, like giving folks messages in advance of when they want to do something doesn't seem that earth shattering, but maybe that's a, a clue. What, what's going to disrupt it to where we make that big seismic shift towards screening more people with the right tests? Um, gosh, that's a tough one. I do think AI is important, but it's only as good as the user of that information. I think that's the, I think, okay, so probably what I would say is the first thing that has to change is how we approach our messaging and education. Like we have to be okay to be like, it's not perfect. It's not a hundred percent like covered in all areas and that it's not so, so secure that, you know, it's like Fort Knox, no one can touch the data and all those things. And I think we have to get over that. Um, I think people are, you know, every, I think our mental health community, if you, if you look at it, like Calm and Noon and like all these different apps that are coming on people's phones, um, people are taking care of their own health in different ways. And I think we have to be open to, to how they want to approach their health and if it's an app or if it's um, texting or if it's whatever those things are, like I think we have to be open to adapt to, to how people do it. That being said, I think it's an easy sort of crutch for us to say, oh, technology will get the work done. Because what I think we have to be weary of is if we, we heavily look at technology, we may accidentally leave those who do not have access to the technology that we're talking about or the band, bandwidth of you know, the internet to be able to do telehealth and these other things, um, we may leave underserved communities behind in some way. Um, so I can't, I, I think there's gonna be great technology to make great progress, but I, I still believe there are relational things that as public health professionals, we need to continue to fund and support programs like the CRC program at um, CDC so that public health workers can go out into the community and build those trusted relationships. And I think ultimately, you know, you can never, turn an app into a relationship in that way. So um, I might be old school. Well, maybe not, but you know, I bet you Amazon can get you your fit test on your 45th birthday. I agree. So <laughs> I do, I do think you're brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, 
I totally agree. I think that, but so for that to be successful, Whitney, we have to be okay with a multimodality approach and not argue about whether it's the, the best test. I, I, my own opinion is that clinicians are either going to have to get with it or get out of the way when it comes to these new modalities that are going to flatten the playing field so people can interact in their own healthcare. Because I, I bet if you look at disparate populations, I bet everybody uses Amazon. I, I agree. bet everybody uses their phone. I bet everybody's I getting home deliveries. So and I, I, think, I go ahead. I think they're at risk of being irrelevant if they don't get with it. I agree. And if we truly believe that, you know, Thrive and Grail and others are going to go after a blood test, it's going to be a two-step process no matter what. And they're, so if they're going to just, they're going to a hundred percent disrupt the prevention system. And if we have that blood test, a really, really good blood test, then I think we need to start talking now. What do we want that system to look like and what is good for patients? Because um, if we wait until that happens, we'll be behind the eight ball. Wait a second. You mean starting on your term paper before it's due? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what you, that, that, that's too reasonable for oh us. Oh my gosh. We see it coming. We can, you know, it's like watching a trade. Like we gotta like. <laughs> no, I think that's really, that's really sentient because, uh, and, and it leads into lead time messaging for on time. It's logistics really is what mm -hmm. we're going to have to deal with. And I don't think that Grail and Thrive and the new companies have yet figured out that they're going to have to close the loop on those positive patients. They just can't leave those tests out there. So it'd be really interesting to see if we can have impact on, on that last mile of, because their last mile is getting their, their test done, right? As clinicians, our last mile is going to be taking those test results and then doing the appropriate evaluations and workup. So I think, I think there's tons of work in this space for all you dissemination and implementation folks who are trying to, to, to make that next leap. It is coming as sure as the day is long and it's beautiful in Charleston, South Carolina. <laughs> you know, for sure. And I think that if when we've talked to folks over there, you know, they're not thinking about it. It's not on their radar. I, it's a really good opportunity for us to come in and help guide that discussion and prepare them and start thinking through what that's going to look like. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, for sure. Hey, anything we haven't touched on that you want to bring out, you want to give any shout outs to your organization or anything like that that you're doing? Um, so quick shout out to Fight CRC. I would say, you know, what we're doing and I think is really important is putting a voice to the data that we talk about. I think that on the back end, we can talk about um, publications and best practices and various things. But I think what I love about the work that we do at Fight CRC is that it is truly patient-centered and that we are fighting alongside some of the most incredible survivors and family members and previvors and champions that I've ever seen. And, and I think with the support of the survivor community, we can continue to rally them the way the breast cancer community has been able to rally their community. We'll, we'll get the job done. Right. Well, listen, I gotta ask you, Angie, What's your secret for a successful cancer fight, given your background, your enthusiasm, and your track record? What advice do you give to folks? As an individual or as an organization? You get to do both. Um, so as an individual, I would say, um, don't give up. Um, and then as a organization, I think we owe it to our community to 
again, I use that word relentless, but I, I really truly believe it. I think we have to be relentless in this fight. I think it's, it's at the core of what we need to do because these are tough questions, tough problems. And it's really easy to succumb, I think, to bureaucracy and paperwork. And um, you just got to really push hard for, for you to be impactful as an organization. So that's, that's sort of what I would say. And to be okay with um, swimming upstream. <laughs> right. Well, and, and if you could study it away, we'd be done by now is what I, I always tell people. It's time for action. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm using the Whitney Jones model. Well, Angie, listen, I want to thank you for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule to share your story with our listeners on Cancer Fight. It's been inspirational. I've learned a whole lot about you and what drives and motivates you. And, and I'm sure our listeners were too. Thank you again. Thank you. Honored to be a part of this. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you for being with us today on Cancer Fight. To keep up with our work, follow Colon Cancer Prevention Project on all major social media platforms and visit our website, kickingbutt.org. Special thanks to our producer, Keaton Jones, and our director, Maggie Cunningham. Until next time, fight on, cancer warriors.